Welcome to The Lover's Hole. You're with Mike. And Ian. And we are rereading Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron novels. We're in the nutmeg of consolation, and we've got a couple of pretty big chapters left to go. Ian, how are we going to handle this? Well, Mike, first of all, we're going to think about where we got to last time in Chapter 8, wherein... Over on Sweetings Island in the South Pacific, the crew of the Surprise had discovered that the villagers on this island had all died of smallpox, except for two young girls who've now joined, for the time being, the Surprise. Meanwhile, aboard the Surprise, the ship's rats had eaten all of Stephen's coca leaves and, along the way, almost everything else on the ship, and turned pretty testy, as did Stephen himself when his stash of coca leaves were all gone. That's not the only drug-related problem we had last time. Jack had double-dosed himself, taking care of a little elementary ailment that he had there, and had missed the Sydney dinner, where lots of things kicked off. Stephen, angered by anti-Irish sentiment, upset by a flogging parson, and further upset by Firkins, the penal secretary, had found himself pulled into a duel with a rich, well-connected military man. And we had that great line in the chapter there, Ask my pardon, or you are a dead man. Yeah, love that. Big payoff for Stephen there. Now, this time, as we're dealing a little bit with the aftermath of that, we're going to be in and around Sydney with the surprise kind of making preparations to kind of get ready to go about her journey here. We're going to meet Martin's friend from university. There are going to be literary lessons. There are going to be obstructing officials. Is there any other kind? There's going to be a great change of fortune. There's going to be convenient corruption, copious convicts, and an unappealing countryside. Huh. Mike, there's so much to pack in that actually we're going to take this chapter, chapter nine, in two halves, right? So, ladies and gentlemen, this week is chapter nine, part one, to help us dig in just as far as we need to. So, Mike, ask my pardon or you're a dead man, said Stephen, resulting in a bit of at at least minor bloodshed. I I guess there must have been some consequences for that. Back aboard the surprise in the cold light of day. Yeah, I I love as O'Brien has us turn the page into chapter nine and we've got Killick talking to Stephen and he's saying he absolutely has to know whether this stain on Stephen's jacket is blood. And, And... so, you know, O'Brien tells us that Killick knows it is blood, but he wants to hear it, you know, out of Stephen's mouth. He wants to confirm, as O'Brien writes, the news that the doctor had run a soldier through had left him weltering in his gore, ruining the governor's bastone steps, ruining the drawing room carpet, uh, which was, by the way, worth a hundred guineas, causing the governor's lady to faint away. And and all of this, uh, O'Brien tells us, is news which had reached the surprise before the barge carrying Stephen and bringing him back. (laughs) And and it had accounted for the particular consideration, esteem, and gentleness with which he was handed up the side. So the surprise is having heard this incredible tale about Stephen. We're like, yeah, he's our man. Let's just get him gently aboard here. Stephen learns that Jack had indeed, from that double dosing that you mentioned, he had been up all night in the privy, but now is snoring away, kind of gone to bed in the last 30 minutes or so. And Stephen decides, yeah, I'm, I'm going to lay down too. And, and he sleeps right through the night until he's awakened at 9.30 the next morning. He learns that Jack, thin and pale, has gone ashore. And Stephen tells Killick to invite Martin to share a pot of coffee. 
Stephen tells Martin that he was forced into this duel by gross physical insult and was careful to disable the man and do him no real harm. You know, Stephen knows that Martin <laughs> is not a fan of duels. Martin is very glad to hear it all that he says, you know, according to the galley rumor, you know, Stephen was represented as Attila come again. So <laughs> it sounded like it was a very different story that Martin was hearing about this duel that Stephen was in. Yeah, and I mean, I'm pleased and everything that Martin gets his kind of fears set to one side, but we get a bit of something that I think is a pattern here for Nathaniel Martin. He he quite likes talking about himself. The conversation pretty naturally turns over to what he's been up to and what his world looks like. And we don't dwell on very much sympathy or empathy for Stephen or even for the guy that Stephen ran through. We get to talking about this guy, Paulton, who is Martin's old university friend who is now living in New South Wales in the vicinity of Sydney. Martin describes how this old friend of his had been known in his youth as Anguish Paulton for the state of his uh, his, his mental well-being, I think. And Mike, uh, this guy Paulton, in the way that he's described to us, seems like a bit of an amalgam of Stephen Maturin and maybe even a, the real world Patrick O'Brien. He, he's an mm. author, as we know. He's Catholic. He's cuckolded. He's an impoverished author doing translations and copy editing, which is a bit of an O'Brienism there. Um, he's repelled by city life, also, I think, an O'Brien signature state, now living remotely from society, tending his cousin's farm just north of Sydney. And Mike, the one thing that I think marks him out as different from either Maturin or O'Brien himself is that this guy, Paulton, is pretty indifferent to the flora and fauna around here. He says he can't tell one bird from another. His only delight then is in books and human company. And therefore, Paulton's really keen for the, for the company. Uh, Paulton's hoping, in fact, that Martin and Maturin will come to dinner with him that night. He's in high hopes that some civil conversation will finally allow him to finish the fourth volume of his novel. And Mike, this idea of novels and finishing off is going to occupy quite a lot of our thought and, uh, and our kind of digressions this week, as we're going to see. He hopes that this novel will allow him finally to leave New South Wales and return, as he calls it, to the land of the living. I'm like, this is a little bit ironic, right? The man who writes so well of love, it turns out, has been thrown over by his wife. And this scholarly man who prizes learning and, you know, being close to the sources of erudition is living in, in the bush on the outskirts of Sydney. He's fallen on hard times in many ways here. Yeah, he really has. He really has. And, it, you know, this guy can't seem to... You say when he's in London, he wants to be in the countryside. When he's in the countryside, it's not enough for him. So, you know, and, and he switches, I guess, with his cousin, you know, out way out in the bush then coming back into Sydney as they as they take turns with this thing. It's something. Well, back on the ship, Slade, the Sethian elder, stops by to see Stephen. And he's asking if they can get permission to visit some friends, some some fellow Sethians who had been transported. So, you know, transported, as, as we recall, as people sent, you know, that in prison, they've been transported to New South Wales here. And, you know, he goes to great lengths to tell Stephen that he'd been, they'd been transported due to the wicked ways of custom officers, you know, that this wasn't their fault, right? It was these government officials, right, and their wily ways. Well, Bondin stops by, and he's hoping Stephen can arrange, you know, for him and others aboard to see some relations of shipmates, of, of surprises, he says, that had been transported. 
Um, and he thought he knew that Stephen wants to go in and find out where Padin is. And he thinks, well, while you're doing that, could you find these people as well here? Now, O'Brien writes, no moral justification, just the word shipmates was enough. Shipmates' friends were to be inquired after whether they'd committed murder, rape, or riotous assembly. So this really quick, you know, one paragraph sort of interesting contrast between the religious Sethians who've got to kind of make all these excuses for why their people were arrested and Bondin who say, you know, hey, I, you know, I yeah, care. these people are, you know, committed horrific crimes, but hey, they're friends of friends. So we, we've just got to go stop by and see them here. So well yeah. done. I like that. Now, I guess, you know, in retrospect, you know, the fact that you know, the Sethians are Christian pirates says a lot to begin with, right? Yeah, and there's lots of different kinds of pirate, and it turns out there's lots of different kinds of Christians. So there you go. There we are. So um, Stephen returns to the ship that evening with this on his mind and to discover that Jack had been waiting for him before having dinner, even though Stephen had left word not to wait. And it's pretty clear straight away what the purpose was of Jack waiting. He's got a bone to pick with Stephen. Mm. We get it straight from the text here. Well, Stephen, he said with an angry glare, here's a pretty cock you've made of things upon my honour. In one short afternoon, you have contrived to guarantee official and unofficial ill will, ill will from all quarters. I felt the effect of it at every visit I made. God knows when we shall get the ship cleaned and ready for sea. And Stephen kind of admits that it's that there's more to this. He says he's faced the same thing from the penal secretary, and that's going to be important for Stephen, who's trying to find out all of this back-channel information about, uh, about convicts here. Jack says he's not surprised since this guy, Firkins, the penal secretary, who once again was at the dinner, is connected to the MacArthur clan who kind of run things here in Sydney. Now, as we go on in this conversation, we hear that Jack's going to suffer more and more official obstruction for all the important stuff that he needs to get done under, as we've learned, a, a new and relatively unknown governor. So Jack's kind of status with the establishment doesn't do him the favours that you might think, at least not for now. And Mike, th this is a tricky moment for the two of them. They're starting to have a, a genuine disagreement here. For the last book or two, I've been thinking to myself, well, Jack and Stephen are in a really good place and Jack's super resourceful and Stephen's kind of climbing out of a couple of bad places that he's been and the friendships flowed quite recently. But now, interestingly, as we get towards the end of the book, there's some tension, there's some grit between them here. And Stephen is left trying to defend and justify his actions at the dinner uh, and ends up apologising. He realises even so that by the uh, the end of this dinner that he's having with Jack, that Jack's still not mollified, but even so, bless him, Jack offers to take Stephen's list of names of convicts and talk to the governor's deputy, as in his capacity as a senior naval officer and as, as a member of parliament, he might have some pull there after all. Right. Stephen hands over the lists to Jack for Adams, the, uh, the purser, to copy out and asks him especially to find out about Padeen and asks that Jack should wait a few days before inquiring, which is the equivalent of pulling the restroom door behind you and saying, I'd give that 10 minutes if I was you. Right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, my. Well, Jack then gives Stephen some official papers that had come for them and a note from Mrs. Macquarie, the governor's wife. You know, a note to Stephen here. Stephen excuses himself to go and read the papers and he looks through Mrs. Macquarie's invitation. It's an invitation to come and talk about the little girls that he had, you know, he had mentioned to that surgeon he was sitting next to at dinner. 
And he notes that her writing, spelling, and good nature remind him of Diana. Oh, <sighs> yeah. And you know, I guess it doesn't take much right now to remind him of Diana. He wants so badly to hear from her. And then, then there's also this black sealed letter. And he opens this, gets out his code book, and he realizes that there's a list of more men in Chile and Peru in favor of independence and opposed to slavery, including, to Stephen's great pleasure, the Bishop of Lima. So we're reminded again, I don't know how many books ago, that we're on our way to South America yeah. <laughs> to help with this. You know, that was the original thing here. Yeah. In, we'll, in no we, kind of a hurry at all, as it turns out. <laughs> right, right. We'll get to literary discussions later and digressions. And man, this is we've had books and books of them. So it's, it's awesome. And in that black sealed envelope, there's also a personal note from Sir Joseph Blaine. And, and Sir Joseph's communications typically are in code, either in an official code or written in a way that Stephen has to kind of read between the lines to get the meaning here. But this one is in plain text, but it's still awfully important. Yeah. Blaine says how honored he had been that Stephen had used his Christian name. That is to say he'd signed himself off as Stephen rather than Maturin in his previous letter. And furthermore, that Blaine says how sorry he is as a result that despite all his best efforts and those of the lawyers he'd hired, that as a result of Stephen signing the power of attorney that he'd given to Blaine without using his last name, the bank would then not honor it and had not moved his fortune to Smith and Klaus. Blaine was initially angered, he says, by the actions of the bank or rather by the inaction of the bank, but much less angry, of course, now that we learn that the bankruptcy of Smith & Close had happened without Stephen's money being there. Stephen's own original recalcitrant uncooperative bank had, despite all of this, emerged from the crisis even stronger so that we learn. Ha-ha, Stephen's fortune is intact and may even have bread, as Sir Joseph Blaine puts it. Blaine also reports that the bank are now in a position to follow Stephen's orders about annuities, subscriptions and the like to the letter. And... We get this really nice sign-off here from Sir Joseph Blaine. Of this, I give you joy and remain, my dear Stephen, your affectionate, though disobedient, humble servant, Joseph. And there's, nice. there's a couple of nice things here. Um, first of all, I like the fact that he's he's chosen to mirror Stephen's mistaken use of the Christian name and promoted himself to a real close level of intimacy by signing himself off as Joseph. The sign-off, affectionate, though disobedient, I, I think that's a little bit of an echo of, of a real-life sign-off that... Sir Joseph Banks, the other kind of real life Sir Joseph, had occasion to use sometimes. Um, there are there are moments where he would write, "You're ever affectionate, but never emulating J. Banks." So oh, I think right. that O'Brien must have had his eye on some of Sir Joseph Banks's correspondence and picked up this little formulation here. That's not the only thing that we like in this little sign off from Blaine, though. Um, he adds this really great postscript: "Should you happen to stroll in a mangrove swamp, and should a specimen." however indifferent, of Eupator ingens happen to pass within easy reach, pray think of me. <laughs> so, Mike, not only have we got this great big plot point turned over, you know, matter-of-fact secondhand, um, casually, well after the action's taken place, very typical O'Brien, but we've got ah this really great little character moment here from Sir Joseph Blaine. Tell, tell us then about Eupator Ingens. This sounds like another one of those Linnaean references that we can dig into. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. So we've got this thing, like you said, typical O'Brien that is, wow, big thing. You know, Stephen hasn't lost his fortune. But then we have a very untypical O'Brien. You know, we know he's such a naturalist, as, as we said earlier, that he, that's one of the ways that he's different from John Poulton. But this description doesn't fit any beetle or bug that I can find here. Um, it doesn't come up in Google hits. It doesn't come up in Ngram hits. And it's kind of a strange thing. It's a Greek tag and a Latin tag put together here. Huh. So, you know, Eupator is a Greek noble surname, meaning somebody who is of a well or noble father. And Ingens is Latin, meaning great or distinguished. So translated, this would be great of a noble father. Huh. Sounds like a great beetle, except I can't find it here. Now, there is a Eupatorus gracialicornis, which is a five-horned rhinoceros beetle. This is a really wow. cool-looking beetle. It's kind of huge. Let's put it out there on social medias. Yeah. However, at least currently, it's found in China, India, Myanmar, Thailand, Laos, and Vietnam. Huh. But for Stephen and Sir Joseph to be talking about it during the time of the novel would be an anachronism since it was first described to the world by a British etymologist, uh, Gilbert John Arrow, in 1908 here. Mm. Now, O'Brien uses this same Greek-Latin tag again in the Commodore, and Sir Joseph calls it the noblest beetle in creation. And that would very well describe the rhinoceros beetle. So either O'Brien knows of some reference to it way back that we can't find, or he just popped it in there. But, you know, as I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about, let's get this picture of the beetle out and everything. And I'm also loving, you know, Sir Joseph's note, this idea that says, sorry, I couldn't move your money. Glad you got your fortune intact. Please bring me a beetle. Right? <laughs> what a great note. <laughs> Yeah, one nerd to another nerd. Yeah, excellent. <laughs> so in any other novel, any other kind of Victorian melodrama, you'd have, you know, people fainting and, oh, my gosh, I'm saved, you know, clouds part, sun shining, church bells ringing. But this is, this is A, more real, and B, this is Stephen Maturin. Right. And he's in this real conflicted mess, this real turmoil of emotions. On the one hand, he's got this gush of pleasure. Of course, he's fortune is safe and he can do all the things that he ever wanted to do with his money then he has a rebellion against that flush of pleasure as a rebellion against his unsettled mind which had grown quite composed the text says he had got quite used to the idea and he's slightly miffed that this hard-won composure this kind of scar tissue that he's given himself is now going to have to get regrown and also anger with himself at how actually his emotions are driving him anyhow his hand is trembling. He has right. belief and disbelief. I might, if ever this happens to me, I, I wonder if I'll be the same. Right. Um, he wanders about his inherited fortune. And in the back of his mind is this thought that having the fortune in the first place had always seemed somehow disproportionate, somehow discreditable and abstract, intangible. A dim set of figures, as the book says, a dim set of figures in a book at the other end of the world. And he wonders how much it's coming and then it's going had affected more than just the surface of his mind, how much this had gone quite deep into his personality. Mm. Ultimately, he does think that it's better to be rich than poor, um, but to be privately rich. And the text says here, he was about to add, and better to be healthy than sick, whatever Pascal may say, when it occurred to him 
that the strong emotions of yesterday and today had done away with the exasperation that had been so powerfully with him, as well as the sleepiness and the desire to smoke tobacco. So Mike, I think he's almost saying this big shock news has almost done him out of his Jones for the coca leaves as well. If that's right. how, we, how we're supposed to read it. So uh, we should talk about the emotional consequences for Stephen in a second. But first of all, let, let's talk about Blaise Pascal, one of these great polymath figures, right? Absolutely. Pascal, French mathematician, physicist, inventor, philosopher, writer, and, you know, in the later stages of his life, Catholic theologian. His, I'd say his later stages of his life, it wasn't a very long life. It was like 1623 to 1662. Yeah. And, and, you know, Stephen's reference about, you know, he's saying, unlike Pascal, better to be healthy than sick. Pascal had, in his later years, tried to reject any help from doctors, saying that sickness is the natural state of Christians. Hmm. And I, I kind of wondered about this. I thought that's that's an interesting thing. And he's got one thing that he wrote called a prayer to ask God the proper use of sickness. And and in reading through that, I'm kind of wondering if maybe some of his thinking came from that. He was reflecting on his own life, where he said that when he was healthy. Uh, and he was sick much of his life. When he was healthy, he didn't thank God for it, and he didn't use his health to serve God, but that in his sickness, he found himself turning to God and and asking that the illness might help strengthen his faith. So, you know, I can see pragmatically where that comes in. Now, that's Blaise Pascal, kind of turning back to to our, our main man, Stephen, here. I'm glad to see that he'd rather be rich than poor and rather be well than sick. And I really do like that he does see, however, you know, like you said, Ian, what this recent turmoil has done for him. Now, having seen what this turmoil has done for him, he doesn't kind of make, I think, Pascal's error. He doesn't think, oh, well, it's better to live in turmoil than not in turmoil. It's like, hey, turmoil did a lot of good things. Glad that's over. Let's get on with it here. Yeah. But I, I still get the impression that this great upheaval these great kind of swings of emotional, you know, disaster to joy seem to have shaken him out of a bit of a funk, out of a, what you might call yeah. a bit of depression and got himself back in touch with his feelings a little bit. And I've, I've noticed that O'Brien in some of the things that he's written and in some of the things that you read about him biographically um, was interested in this idea of his characters and of people who are looking for their own ability to to love and to form attachment. And I think we're hearing here that Stephen was a little bit distant from the world and a bit detached, and maybe this shock has shaken him up a little bit, and he feels now more naturally in touch with the emotions that you think he would be in touch with. And maybe these are mental health tips and well-being tips from Patrick O'Brien and Stephen Matron for the rest of us. Certainly, I get that Patrick O'Brien had difficulties in different parts of his life in forming relationships with various members of his family and seems to have been working these over in his mind and in the stories of the characters that he writes about. And he wrote this piece maybe to help Stephen snap out of it. Uh, it's interesting that it's a, it's a nice character contrast with Jack. Jack doesn't need this kind of help. Jack doesn't need to be snapped out of anything. He throws himself emotionally into most of the things that he comes across, rides the roller coaster of life with abandon. And that's not always completely safe for him, but at least I think it leaves him generally in a bit better state mentally than Stephen. So maybe... Mike, there's a, there's a lesson for all of us there, um, even those of us not in possession of either a dueling sword or in command of a frigate. 
Yeah, once again, the yin and yang of Stephen and Jack, you know, know, really are great things. Well, you know, it kind of raises a question too. You know, what kind of emotional state was Stephen in when he missigned this power of attorney three months ago? And on the walk to government house, we get the answer. Stephen remembers, he recalls that he was writing a letter to Diana at the same time that he was monotonously copying over this power of attorney for Sir Joseph. The lawyer had given him all the words, but he had to write it in his own hand. And he's pretty much certain at that point that he had absentmindedly signed his letter to Diana, formerly S. Matron, <laughs> while he signed the one to Joseph informally, Stephen. And you know, now I'm sorry, you know, I'm thinking about this worrying. Is this why we haven't heard from Diana for so long here? Maybe not, but it does make me worry. Well, he's thinking about this as he's walking up to Government House. And at Government House, he learns that Mrs. McQuarrie has another trait that she shares with Diana. She's unpunctual. So while he's waiting for her, he's spending his time watching this small kangaroo, which is on their lawn. The governor's wife comes in. She's very gracious. And she makes no mention of Stephen's encounter with Lowe. I think Stephen you know, was worried about this, but then he realizes that Mrs. Macquarie and her husband, the governor, had spent a long time, he being in the military, in India. And so like Diana, she would have known that in India, where, as O'Brien writes, where white officers overfed, too hot, too absolute, fought so often that a mere wound was scarcely noticed. Um, and Mike, th- th- this has got echoes of the world of Bombay and Calcutta and Canning and Diana from way back in HMS Surprise. And Ka- Canning demonstrated all of these attributes of being overhead and too hot and fighting so too often, uh, very much to his own cost, way back That's in right. HMS Surprise. Oh. Well, Stephen tells Mrs. Macquarie about the little girls and says that he doesn't want to take them home to a cold and damp England, so being so unlike their home weather. But he says he'd be happy to maintain and endow them here. And and maybe he finds it extra easy to talk about endowments now that he knows his fortune is intact. Mrs. Macquarie asks him to bring the girls round the next afternoon. And as Stephen leaves, we get another encounter with his kangaroo. The kangaroo comes up to him, bleats, realises Stephen's hands are empty. There's nothing there for the kangaroo. Declines his caress and watches Stephen until he walks out of the gate. As the kangaroo is watching Stephen walk away, you might be wanting to take a couple of steps away yourself. Let's take a short break right now, and we'll be right back. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. I hope you and your kangaroos had a good time off there. Ian, where's this take us back to? I'm sensing this connection back to the world of HMS Surprise. I'm sensing the emotional turmoil going on inside Stephen. We're back, as I said, Mike, I think in this HMS Surprise territory of darkness and introspection. We've got vulnerable children. We've got long distance lovers and hot weather. What we need now is a bit of travelogue style distraction. And who better to help us with that than Nathaniel Martin? Nathaniel Martin hasn't been injured by an animal for ages, not since his last encounter with a tapir at some point in the Surprises Voyage, which must be now several chapters ago. So has he 
How's he coming along there, our man Nathaniel Martin? In, injured much? <laughs> That's, it's so funny. You know, you're absolutely right, Ian. You know, Stephen's walking up to Riley's hotel to meet Martin. And as he arrives, he sees Martin standing next to what O'Brien calls a funereal cockatoo. And Martin is wrapping a handkerchief around his bleeding finger. And, and ah, Stephen realizes- I'll rest my case. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Martin's been bitten by this cockatoo. And, and Stephen says, you buy your experience at a terrible price, I find. <laughs> He's watching that blood soak through the handkerchief. And Martin says, no, no, it's all my fault. I, you know, I pulled that finger away too fast. I frightened the bird. But Stephen looks over and he sees that the bird is kind of gauging the distance. We're going to take another bite out of Martin's finger here. And so Martin, you know, I think Martin's just not getting it with some of these animals here, <laughs> unlike Stephen here. Well, they sit down, you know, it, Martin is ready to go see Poulton. Stephen says, no, wait, wait, wait. We got to do something for the house here. You, you know, we've been waiting here. We need to buy a drink here. And they find this tray of local objects that Stephen surmises is, is kind of been gathered together for visiting sailors, you know, these kind of curiosities of the area. And when they're ordering their drinks, Stephen asks about this strange wooden object. And the bartender says, well, that, sir, is an Aborigines oh, toy, you might say, since they only use them for play. They hold one end and throw it spinning like a Catherine wheel. And when it has gone 50 yards or so, it rises up, curves, and comes back to hand. There was an old Aboriginal that used to show it for a tot of rum, but that was his undoing, uh, that meaning the tot of rum here. Wait, says Martin, you throw it from you and it comes back without rebounding? The bartender says, you find it hard to believe, sir, I'm sure. And so it is, too, if you've not seen it. But reflect, sir, you are in the antipodes. You are standing upside down like a fly on the ceiling. We are all standing upside down, which is much stranger than black swans or sticks that fly back to your hand. So, you know, we, we get this first of many indications that we're somehow in Australia at the bottom of the world, upside down, black swans. You know, there was never a black swan everywhere until one was discovered in Australia. This boomerang, we all know this is a boomerang, you know, sticks that fly back to your hand. And I think this is, you know, it's kind of a, a little bit of a metaphor for this, you know, all these convicts and chain gangs, the, the whipping posts permanently installed in the streets, the control of the rum corps, you know, all these strange plants and wildlife, uh, you know, that are so very different from elsewhere. Uh, we're not just on the far side of the world, but O'Brien's pointing out we're at the bottom of the world. And I, I remember when they were first arriving in Sydney Cove and, you know, Stephen's saying to the east and, and Martin's looking kind of the opposite direction. And Stephen's saying, no, no, over there to the east. And Martin was saying, well, wait, you know, we're upside down. So the east would be over there. So, you know, here we are. <laughs> it's it's quite a, a, a comedy of errors and this idea that perhaps this is the world in many ways turned upside down. Yeah. And by the way, I just want to give a big hello Meanwhile, to all of our listeners from Australia, we've got plenty of right. listeners who are in Australia and New Zealand. Hello. We, we, we don't think of you, and we don't think of your home country this way. And the Australian landscape is a little bit like a Scottish accent. Patrick O'Brien has just decided that he's going to use it to symbolize all this other right. bad stuff. And we know it's a beautiful country, and we, we know you're beautiful people, and there you go. Anyhow, it, we're not going to let go of this metaphor, because as they're walking along, 
Martin continues this line of thought and says that, well, maybe this, this place that we're in is the opposite of our world. I mean, it's as different from home as Hades, as hell is from Earth. And he asks Stephen, just as you were saying, Mike, about the all, all the other signs of you know human misery here. Doesn't he find the chains, the omnipresence of ragged, dirty, cheerless men whom we must suppose criminal, deeply depressing? Stephen says he does indeed find it that. And he'd rather stay on the boat if it wasn't that he wanted to get out in the country so much. And he says, well, actually, it's not just the sight of the people who are being oppressed. It's the eager cruelty of the oppressors, he says. It saddens me even more. And you know, asking a great question, who, who are the real monsters here? Mm. Wow. Wow. Anyhow, they, they arrive at Porton's house. And now that we're meeting this Porton guy in person, we have to learn a little bit about him. He thanks them for coming. He serves tea and asks Stephen about the many books that he's written, spotting straight away, knowing straight away that Stephen's a published author. And he asks if Stephen can compose. It's interesting that he uses the verb compose. I don't think Stephen would ever use that to describe to himself his own, his own writing that he does or the purpose of it. He asks if Stephen can compose his writings at sea or whether he waits, in fact, for the peace and calm of a country retreat. Stephen says he has written at sea, but does write long considered pieces on land when the ink is less likely to turn over. However, he says he does love to read at sea with wax in his ears, swinging in his cot with the ship's sounds around him. Martin says, on the other hand, he is afraid to put wax in his ears and he's afraid that he'll miss this cry that the ship is sinking. A little bit of anxious kind of vulnerability there from this guy, Martin. And Poulton then asks Stephen if he reads novels or plays. And Mike, now we're getting into it here. Stephen says... I read novels with the utmost pertinacity. I look upon them, I look upon good novels as a very valuable part of literature, conveying more exact and finely distinguished knowledge of the human heart and mind than almost any other, with greater breadth and depth and fewer constraints. And then Stephen adds, had I not read Madame de Lafayette, the Abbe Prévost, and the man who wrote Clarissa, that extraordinary feat, I should be very much poorer than I am, and a moment's reflection would add many more. Now, Mike, we, we, we've got a lot to dig into here. We've got some references to some authors that I'm sure are going to turn up some gold for us. But this is a really, really great starting reflection, isn't it? I'm not, not only a little bit of vainglorious art novelist great on the part of Patrick O'Brien, but also a really great reflection on the value of good literature. It, it really is, Ian. I, I, you know, it's, it's funny because... You know, I was working on this chapter this week and and I had on Friday the joy of catching up with my best friend from high school. Hadn't seen him in, you know, almost decades. And uh, we're catching up with each other. I mentioned the podcast. He, you know, oh, you know, what's that about? And uh, sent him a copy of Master and Commander, which he is digging into. And we, and we happen to be having a follow-up conversation about, you know, why you and I and so many people around the world you know, are, are reading these books from, you know, kind of what, what seems like, you know, naval historical fiction from the 1800s. Yeah. Tell me, why has this caught you? And, and I came across that sentence and I wrote it back to him to say, yeah, this, 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 <laughs> this perhaps summarizes it even better than I can here. So, uh, you know, I definitely, it's why I love these books here. And 
you know, it's interesting, you know, and I, I, you know, you kind of wonder where O'Brien gets all this. I mean, a lot of it is the magic of him, but some of it, he clearly does reach back and say, hey, there's a tradition of this. And he's, he's just sort of thrown them all together here. All of which I will say, I've heard of none of. I'm sure, Ian, that you from England, some of these are probably pretty mainstay here from Europe and from England. But for me, all brand new. I'd be very careful before I start to claim that, oh, yes, I'm familiar with all of the works of Samuel Richardson. Let, let's, let's, let's take them one at a time. Uh, Madame de Lafayette, com- completely new for me. This one sailed completely past me. Marie-Madeleine Pioche de la Vienne, Comtesse de Lafayette, to give her her Sunday name. Of 1634 to 1693, better known as Madame de Lafayette, was a, a, a French writer. She authored a book called La Princesse de Cleves, or Cleves, as we would call it, one of Henry VIII's wives being from Cleves. Hmm. This was France's real first historical novel and one of the earliest novels in literature. First historical novel, that's got to be, and in French, that's got to be an important touchstone for Patrick O'Brien. Right. First published anonymously in 1678, and many people regard it as the beginning of the modern tradition of the psychological novel. And again, that that can't have escaped O'Brien's notice. I was slightly aware of the Abbe Prévost, Antoine-François Prévost d'Exil, also a 17th century person, born in 1697, lived through, of course, to the next century, died 1763, normally known as Abbe Prévost, was a priest, author, and novelist, had a connection with the Jesuits and the Benedictines in and out of their monasteries, connections with the military, with France, with the Netherlands, with England. He wrote translations, which we'll talk about in a second, histories and novels. And over the years, his famous multi-volume work, Memoirs et Aventures d'un homme de qualité, Memoirs and Adventures of a Man of Quality. And the final volume of this is the story that lots of people know as being Prévost's kind of literary masterwork, Manon Lescaut was published separately as, as a book all by itself in 1731. This book was read very eagerly, was chiefly available in pirated copies, being forbidden in France. There's another connection here to O'Brien's world, which is that the Abbé Prévost's book, Histoire Générale des Voyages, A General History of Travels or Voyages, you might call it an early example of a travel book, was a book that O'Brien, we know, owned a copy of and was going to provide source material for, among other things, Stephen's Adventures in the Andes, which I'm going to mention at risk of a very, very slight spoiler coming up later in the canon. And then finally, Mike, we've got a reference not to an author, in fact, but to a book, uh, Clarissa. Again, a name that's going to mean a lot to us. Tell us a little bit about Clarissa. Well, you know, this Clarissa, or and, and I love, you know, this was you know, all these multi-volume novels. And when you when you get this full title, you understand how they could become that way. This is Clarissa or the history of a young lady comprehending the most important concerns of private life and particularly showing the distress that may attend the misconduct both of parents and children in relation to marriage. Mm-hmm. End of title. So it's <laughs> it's a novel that's written completely in letters. So here we have one that Again, going back, this was, you know, Jane Austen used the letters very well. Patrick O'Brien picks up a little bit of this. We just had Stephen, you know, going through some letters a minute ago here. And this novel by English writer Samuel Richardson, published in 1748. It tells the tragic story of a young woman, Clarissa Harlow, whose quest for virtue is continually thwarted by her family. It's one of the longest novels in the English language and, and, and considered by many to be one of the best. Now, 
in our story, Stephen expresses some doubts that Richardson actually wrote this. Richardson was a famous book publisher at the time. And like Madame de Lafayette's famous book, his name was not on the first edition. Now, none of the authorities that I reviewed doubt Richardson's authorship here. And we've mentioned all these different people. We talked about it. Abbe Prevost, who you were talking about a minute ago, actually translated all of Richardson's books into French. So there's an interconnection between these as well here. And I, you know, I was fascinated kind of reading summaries of these, all these different writers and their novels here. You know, it seems like they're all kind of love stories of a sort, somewhat scandalous. They portray people acting like real people, not sort of your traditional heroic tales and heroic people. They're all rooted in a point of history and they follow the development of characters, sometimes in, you know, what we might call extreme situations. So it sounds a little bit like another author we know and love here. Yeah. It really does. does. (laughs) They're all digging into emotions, the morality of daily life as it's lived and experienced by people and people learning or not learning from what they experience. It's what O'Brien, you know, and, and I think others have called the human condition. And these are definitely not happily ever after novels necessarily. No, they're not, are they? And uh, O'Brien seems pretty determined, I think, not to fall into the trap of happily ever after. This book, Clarissa, by the way, does seem to be one that O'Brien was particularly interested in, skimming through the Dean King biography, which, if any of the listeners haven't read it, is is really, really worth a read. O'Brien read aloud to Mary in hospital, recovering from a fairly serious car wreck in 1977, a book by Samuel Richardson. I'm going to guess that it might well have been Clarissa. And think about the the name Clarissa. That's a, a, a title, at least to, to to non-US buyers of Patrick O'Brien's books, that's going to come next in the canon. Dean King pointed out that this is this, this, this cautionary tale about misconduct of parents and children ends in tragedy. And all of this sounds like a familiar, even recurrent set of themes for Patrick O'Brien. So having had this really great deep conversation about novels and the value and the meaning of novels and how much Stephen appreciates them. Paulton's starting to appreciate Stephen's judgment as a, I'm not going to say as a connoisseur, but as a thinker about, uh, uh, about books. And he and Martin go on and suggest many more excellent novels that could be considered. And after discussing the authorship or otherwise of Clarissa at the hands of Richardson, or was it somebody else? Paulton begins to talk about his own writing and says he can't finish the fourth and final volume of his novel here in the countryside at Wulu Wulu, which is his uh, cousin's prison labor plantation, or just about, you could call it a farm. Paulton thought, he said, that countryside would be a perfect setting for writing, but he says he found nothing that qualifies as countryside. There's nothing rural. It's dull colored, flat. It's dusty. There's monotonous bush. There are what he calls ugly, melancholy trees. He refers to his cousin's farm place as an industrial scar with no true fields, with a stockade for prisoners, an overseer who pushes the men hard and cares only about profit. And there's no one for Paulton to talk to except occasional Aborigines, and he knows very little about their language. He describes the area, again, with with apologies and love to our Australian listeners, he describes the area as a huge, featureless expanse of colourless, monotonous, inhuman, primeval waste that stretches away and away before you. 
and he refers to a river on the property which he calls the Styx. The Styx being the river in Greek mythology um, that separated the land of the living from the land of the dead, the boundary between earth and the underworld. Um, Styx also being the name of a goddess in Greek mythology. Throwback to the mythology that we talked about in Master and Commander and the Acheron, by the way. But anyway, all that to one side. Uh, he thought, thinks that at least in Hades, there was at least some company, but at Wulu Wulu, there was none. He says it's like solitary confinement, and he feels that he can't write an ending to his novel in solitary confinement, even though he badly needs it. And Mike, th- this really bleak description of the Australian landscape reminds me a lot of a, a, a couple of pictures. What? First of all, there's a picture that we got as a gift, a painting by a fairly famous Australian landscape artist called Arthur Streeton. And this picture hangs in our guest bedroom, and it's a picture of the landscape, I think actually in the state of Victoria. And it's called The Purple Moon's Transparent Might. But there's another picture by Streeton that absolutely conjures up this idea of a bleached, parched landscape with a river in it. It's called The Creek. Uh, and if you want to go online and look for Arthur Streeton's pictures, The Creek painted in 1925, we'll see if we can get that out on the socials as well. It's a really, really great evocation of this really striking uh, but unworldly kind of landscape. You know, I'm going to join you. That picture is, is it really is a beautiful, fascinating picture. It you know, reminds me a lot of the American West, yeah. um, you know, and some of the colors and everything else. So you know, and, and we've got this great Santa Fe artist community. I will tell you that I spent many years of my life trying to get transferred to Australia. I'd, I'd worked there off and on. So <laughs> to our Australian listeners, you know, good day, mate. And, uh, you know, I, I, I and, and the book, I will have to say, and I don't think, you know, we have it in the notes here. At one point, Paulton says, you know, I've been told that the rest of the country is much more beautiful than where we are. So <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll echo that thought. But, you know, we're we're here with... Poulton unable to finish this final chapter in his fourth volume. And then Martin starts to kind of speculate. He says, you know, I'm, I'm wondering if endings are really all that important in novels. He said Stern, you know, did quite well without one. And he says, you know, from his own experience, an unfinished picture is much more interesting for the bare canvas. Uh, and then O'Brien writes, this is Martin speaking, I remember Borville's definition of a novel as a work in which life flows in abundance, swirling without a pause, or as you might say, without an end, an organized end. And there is at least one Mozart quartet that stops without the slightest ceremony, most satisfying when you get used to it. And Stephen agrees. He says, there's another Frenchman whose name escapes me, but it, who is even more to the point. Huh. Gustave Flaubert had this great saying that's echoed in the text here. La bêtise, c'est de vouloir conclure. It's stupid to want to bring things to a conclusion. I think the word is even even, even ruder than stupid, but never mind. It's, <laughs> it's dumb to want to finish things off. And I'm really curious about this idea of not wanting to finish things off. I, I think this is a pattern that O'Brien had cultivated long before this moment. And maybe he's sitting here writing, reflecting on this, looking back at how he has ended up structuring all these stories for all of these books up to this point. But finishing things off is something that is that is bestially stupid. Let, let, let's just go back a second, though. This, this Bourville reference, I, I had never picked up on that. Do you want to tell us a bit about who Bourville is or might have been? Yeah, that Borville, some people have said that perhaps um, Anthony Gary Brown, particularly in the POB Muster book, thinks that, you know, 
this Borville reference is, is an O'Brien tease. Borville, B-O-U-R-V-I-L, as opposed to B-O-U-R-V-I-L-L-E, in, in, it, as Martin says it in the text here, Borville was a popular French comedian from O'Brien's day. He lived from 1917 to 1970. And Martin's quote attributed to Borville is pretty close to one from the poet, essayist, and art critic Baudelaire, I think, as you were saying earlier, Ian, here. And, you know, we've got all these literary references in this chapter here. Now, one of the reasons that probably some of these are happening, and then, you know, Stephen says there's this Frenchman that I couldn't remember the name of. All of the folks that they're quoting, Flaubert, Baudelaire, said these things, uh-huh. but they said them after the time of the book. So right. if you put that quote in, it's an anachronism. But, you know, I think O'Brien wants to get that sentiment there. So, you know, he even has it's even kind of coming in after the French quote that you had mentioned saying, you know, the conventional ending with virtue rewarded and loose ends tied up is often sadly chilling. And its platitude and falsity tend to infect what has gone before, however excellent. You know, Stephen ends it by saying many books would be far better without their last chapter or at least with no more than a brief, cool, unemotional statement (laughs) of the outcome. You know, and so I thought, wow, you know, like you said, Ian, you know, we've seen in some of O'Brien's books, there's kind of a nice wrap up in some of them. You're just kind of like, okay, this book ended and keep, you know, you turn the page and the next book keeps going. Maybe yeah. he's overplaying his hand a little bit. I, I don't think he thinks novel endings are completely pointless. He's demonstrated, like you say, Mike, he's got some skill with wrapping up novels. There are endings of books, The Surgeon's May, Reverse of the Medal, Treason's Harbour, with great dramatic moments where even in the final paragraph, there's a resolution and the story wraps up and story arcs are, are, are brought to an end. But he seems to like to not have conclusions that relate to the principal characters. He doesn't like all of the plot arcs to be tied up all at once. Yes. He loves the idea of loose ends kind of dangling. He studiously avoids, it seems to me, anything at the end of a novel that suggests like, we, you know, we have learned something that is forever true. He studiously avoids saying anything like, and Stephen and Jack from this point will be inseparable friends forever, the end. Uh, and there are other relationships for which this is true as well, besides right. Stephen and Jack, I think. I think he writes about friendship, for example, partly from the realization that friendships shift and evolve and deepen over time. And maybe he thinks that any real friendship is is always going to have its best days and is also its darkest challenges ahead of it. And I, I really like that idea. I, I, I think it's the reason why, as we've already noticed, yeah. he's building up the tension at the end of this book between Jack and Stephen, because it would be commonplace to leave them just happy having sailed away from Australia. I'll go further and I'll say, I think Patrick O'Brien, for all his kind of introspection and his curmudgeonly worldview, was essentially an optimist. And I think he realized as a storyteller, you can't be an optimist and look ahead if you get used to being able to say, and they all lived happily ever after, because that's sort of the opposite. It says the story is done now. It's counterintuitive, but I think O'Brien likes to look ahead. He likes to keep his friendships and the arcs of their relationships looking ahead. And I think that's exactly what he's doing with Stephen and Jack in this book. And I think that's exactly maybe the thought process that he's talking about through the mouths of Paulton and Stephen and Martin as they're having this conversation. Right. You know, Martin had mentioned Stern earlier and said Stern didn't have an ending and, you know, he did yeah. fine. Yeah. And this this Lawrence Stern, another, you know, 18th century, so 1713 to 1768. 
Anglo-Irish novelist and an Anglican cleric. So, uh, you know, an Anglican clergyman, a perfect man for, for Martin to be quoting here. Yeah. He wrote this Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy Gentleman. And this thing, which really made him, I mean, wrote other books as well, but this one, that one made him really famous in England and Europe, is filled with digressions. So, you know, he starts off on kind of the first page talking about, you know, kind of narrating his birth. And then he digresses, and it's like three books later, he gets back to, oh, right, my birth. Let me get there. And I'm kind of thinking about this journey to South America and our dear Patrick O'Brien that we're in the middle of now going, wait, 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 how many books ago was it? We were, we we're headed for South America. Let's go. Here we go here. Yeah, if, if you think listening to a podcast about Patrick O'Brien is full of digressions and diversions and rabbit holes, right. try, try a few pages of Tristram Shandy and see how you get along. <laughs> exactly. And, and apparently, the you know, Tristan Shandy goes on nine volumes and has no conclusion. Nine it just stops. Nine volumes? Lightweight. Yeah, right, right. I tried 21 here. So, yeah, and, and don't get me started. I think O'Brien is not foreshadowing that 21 won't be finished, right? right. No. No, 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 <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. Well, Stern, though, is fascinating as I was reading about him to it says that you know his innovations in writing actually influenced people like James Joyce, Virginia Woolf, Thomas Pynchon, and David Foster Wallace. That's a pretty yeah. diverse and pretty interesting crew. Yeah, so that, I've, that's, I've got to come that's back opening with. the door to the most modern of modernism as well, once you get into James Joyce. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we've got so many different directions that this is the reason why we're, we're wrapping this at the halfway point in the chapter here, because there's so many things to think about. O'Brien, besides packing the chapter with some important plot points that he needs to get done within his chapter structure. He can't resist distracting us with all these things that take in, his, his, in all of these different directions, all these different themes and allusions. Very few of them, if any, pointing towards the coming voyage of the surprise and the continuation of her mission in South America, with, with the possible exception, Mike, of that black sealed envelope that we talked about earlier on in the chapter. None of this is buttering any parsnips as, par, as far as the voyage of HMS Surprise is concerned. But who cares? No. But who cares? It's fascinating stuff. So amid all this thinking about uh, not having endings, Paulton is quite intrigued with the possibility of a, a, a partial or an incomplete or a not completely um, summative kind of ending and asks Martin to take the novel away to read it and tell him if it will really do without any beating of drums or if you could suggest the first notes of the true closing passage how happy I should be. I could escape from this cruel, desolate, corrupt, and corrupting place. Oh, and Mike, with, with the idea of escape on our minds, that's a really, really great place to end the first half of our coverage of chapter nine of this fabulous book. We still have a chapter and a half to go. And if this half chapter is anything to go by, we, we've got lots to come next, right? We, we really do. I mean, we've, we've got Sarah and Emily and the governor's wife. What's going to be happening here? We've got, you know, uh, Stephen and Poulton and these writing ambitions. Where is this taking us? You know, Poulton's played a really important part of this. How does this weave into the story here. Stephen's exploration of New South Wales. You know, we're hearing all this horrific stuff, sorry again to our Australian friends, about this particular area. And we know that Stephen's really keen to get out there and, and you know, find his platypus here. What's going to happen with Stephen? Is he ever going to get out here? And, and we've got additional things still kind of wide open, don't we, Ian? 
Yeah, we do. Can Jack get back any of the goodwill that we now know that he needs, that Stephen has wrecked with the shore-based authorities? How close is this going to bring Stephen to Padine? How much closer is he going to get to Diana? And what's going on back home? Mike? All of these still questions to be resolved. I guess there's one thing for it. Mike, what do you say next time to at least a half a chapter more of Patrick O'Brien? Oh, I should like that of all things. adds this really great postscript should you happen to scroll scroll <laughs> should you happen to stroll in a mangrove swamp and should a specimen however in this